We're in a study on the book of John, and we've been going through, uh, not super fast, but today we're going we're gonna to take a big chunk of, of Scripture from 22 to 36 of John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. But uh, before, as we get, uh, get up to this, I just want to mention something. I've kind of talked about this before, but kind of my philosophy on how things I do things sometimes in specific areas. Sometimes when I'm reading and I'm studying, I come across stuff that I think is really interesting. I come across information that I think is, is uh, interesting. It's cool. I like it. I'm a history buff, so I like history stuff a lot. And, uh, but I don't want to teach. So I always have to, I struggle with what am I going to put into the sermon because I don't want to teach stuff just for the sake of stuff. You know, like, oh, this is cool. Because scripture tells us knowledge puffs up, right? We're, We're seeking wisdom is what we're seeking here. And so, when I do bring things up that I think are really cool, and you'll know because I get so excited about it, it's because I think it's going to help us as we interpret Scripture. It's going to help us as we learn more about this man, Jesus, or other people in the Bible and who they are. So I will bring these things up, but today I'm going to bring some up because I think it's very important. But it is a struggle because I'll be honest with you, sometimes it's tempting just to, just to throw out nuggets that are just new, cool stuff, and everybody's like, wow, you know so much. I'm like, I know I do. Yeah. And it just becomes an ego thing, right? And I don't want that. I, I do want it, but I don't want it. I'm fighting it. I don't want it to be just about my ego, just about, oh, you're so smart. You know so much. I don't want that. I really want it to be applicable. So sometimes, if you ever want to come to my office, there's some nuggets in there, but they, they're not really, I didn't bring them up because they weren't that important. All right? So we're going to talk about the idea of witness. Um, I've had the privilege <laughs> of sometimes being a witness in a trial. Uh, one time um, when I, I was witness uh, for the defendant and the prosecution got up and, and they said, so tell us what you saw. And I said, this is what I saw. And he looked at me and he goes, did you see? And he mentioned something else, this and this. I said, no, I didn't mention that. What I saw was this. And I talked about it a little bit. He goes, all right, I understand that. But in the way you reacted to what you saw, Maybe you saw, and he said something else, like, maybe you saw this. And I was like, no, I, I didn't see that. That's not what I saw. And, 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 and I looked at him, and I was starting to say something, but the, 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 the lawyer that I was being a witness for, he had told me beforehand, no, don't offer anything. Don't speak back to him. Don't tell him he's an idiot. Don't do it. He said, I know this lawyer, he is an idiot, but don't tell him he's an idiot because then you become a combative witness and it just opens things up and uh, it, can, it can sway the jury. And because uh, I wanted to tell him, you're trying to plant things in, you're trying to put things in my, that I didn't see. You're a low life, right? That's what I wanted to say because I knew where he was going. And uh, I said, nope, this is all I saw. All I can tell you is what I saw and that's it. And uh, he seemed very disappointed in me, but I was, I was happy with that. I was okay with that. See, when you have a witness, what you want them to tell you is what they saw. What's the truth? You don't want them to embellish. You don't want them to expound. You don't want them to say, well, because I saw that, I kind of thought that maybe this is what's happening. Nope. Nope. That goes beyond. Just tell them what you saw. And we're going to look at here um, two points. They both overlap, but I, two witnesses and in this scripture, it kind of it does overlap. So first one we'll see is the witness 
from earth. That's verses uh, 22 to 30. So let's read those. Here it is. It says, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, the one you bore witness to, look, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. Now, so we're going to look at this, the witness from earth. And the first thing is the disciples' problem because the disciples have a problem here. They don't like what they're seeing. There, uh, John has this uh, message that's been given to him. His message was to prepare the way of the Lord, to be the one in the wilderness shouting, prepare the way for the Lord. The Messiah is coming. Repent because the Messiah is coming. That was his job. That's the message he received. And so Jesus now is out in the countryside. In verse 22, he's out in the, in the less populated areas, is how you would say that. And it's kind of a strange beginning for a ministry, right? In our day and age, what would we do? No, you got to have a, you got to go to Jerusalem. You got to have a big unveiling, drop a curtain, fireworks, boom, bam, make it powerful, make it cool, jump off a high building and don't hurt yourself. Something big. And what does Jesus do? He starts off by doing something in a backwater area. He, he changes some water into wine, but, but there's probably only about, couple hundred people there at the most in the middle of nowhere. Then he takes his disciples out into the countryside. And what is he doing? It seems that what he's doing is he's building into their lives. He's discipling them. He's getting them ready for what's to come. And he's also baptizing. And so we have this issue here that they're saying, hey, he's baptizing too. And then in verse 24, let me pull that here. There it is. <clears throat> There's this little blurb. This was before John was put in prison. Now, John the Apostle, this is the only time he mentions, he doesn't really delve a lot into John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke delve into John the Baptist going to prison. And we need to think about that for a minute. This is one of those times where I'm going to take, take that and just explain it a little bit so we understand what's going on. Because the writer assumes that everyone knows the story. But everyone doesn't know the story necessarily. So let's talk about that story. Um, a little bit later after this, a bit later after this, John the Baptist gets into trouble. Now, here's the trouble he gets into. In Scripture, you'll read about Herod. There's all kinds of Herods. Herod the Great was the, was the one who was alive when Jesus was born. He had a lot of wives. We know at least five by name, but evidently he might have had 10 or 15 wives. He had a lot of kids. He killed a lot of his kids. He was always worried that someone was going to try to take over his throne and kill him, so he preemptively killed people to make sure they didn't do that. So he had his favorite wife, Miriam, and he loved her like crazy, and then he started thinking maybe she's weaseling her way, and so he killed her. And she was his favorite. So you see how this is. So Herod the Great, he has these kids, and he names a bunch of them Herod. So it just makes it so hard in Scripture to figure out which Herod we're talking about. But we know from kind of second names, there's a Herod Antipas. There's a Herod Philip. Now, Herod Philip, he married kind of like his half-sister, half-niece, his, his sister's daughter. He married his sister's daughter. She was very beautiful. Her name was Herodias. Herod's everywhere, right? Her name was Herodias. So he marries her. So this is a very shaky relationship. And 
Herod Antipher, who, uh, who uh, he married along the edge of... Man, this is a little more complicated. This seems simple to me. On the edge of his borders is the country of Nabatea. They were always fighting. There was big border problems there. There was a lot of controversy over what the border actually was. So he married the king of Nabatea's daughter, Herod Antipas. So Antipas, he married the king of Nabatea's daughter to keep things peaceful on the edge of his realm. He goes to visit his brother, Herod Philip, who married Herodias. And he's like, wow, she's beautiful. And he falls in love with her. And she falls in love with him. But she says, I'm a one, you know, one woman gal, one man, whatever, no one else. You, I don't know exactly what she said. <laughs> it was along those lines. So she told him you need to get rid of her, kick her out, right? So his wife, Herod Antipas's wife, the king of Nabatea's daughter, he tells her, boo, right? And she gets on the phone. She goes, Daddy, you won't believe what he did. And he's like, I'm going to come kick his butt right now, right? So Herod marries. Herod Antipas marries Herodias. John the Baptist says, this is an evil marriage. This is wrong. You can't marry your brother's wife. You can't marry your half-sister. This is wrong. And so he got arrested. Herod Antipas finally arrested John because John was being too blatant about criticizing him. In those days, you just can't criticize whoever's in power. It's just not done. Now, that's important to remember, right? Because here's kind of the rest of the story. The king of Nabatea got his army together and started marching towards uh, Herod Antipas's land. Herod Antipas got his army together, started marching toward his land. Along the way, half his army, who were recruited through his brother Herod, Herod Philip, deserted to the other side. So now he's outnumbered two to one. And he gets his butt kicked. And he, pays, he loses land and pays tribute to the king of Nabatea for years and years and years. Right? This, now, this little story, I mean, I like history, kind of cool. But there's more to it. In Luke 14, Jesus is talking about count the cost. And he uses two illustrations of counting the cost. The first one is this. First one is, who builds a tower without figuring out how much it's going to cost to build the whole tower? Otherwise, they quit halfway, and everybody goes, look, that's the dope that can't build a tower, right? It would be very much like, if you remember, about 10 years ago, we had a big problem with the road work that was being done at Mercury Boulevard. What kind of idiot DMV figures out a roadway and accidentally makes it so it drains to the middle, not to the sides. And everybody's like, oh, what dummies? Cost millions of dollars to fix. Something they could relate to. The second one is, what kind of idiot goes to war with 10,000 men when the guy he's going to fight has 20,000 men and you know he's going to get trashed? What does he do? He counts the cost and he sends people ahead and says, let's make peace. Let's not kill each other's people. Let's be, let's be sensitive about this, right? What kind of idiot does that? Everybody's like, yeah, what kind of idiot? Ooh. Where Jesus says this is right by where Herod Antipas lives. And everybody's like, ixnay on the inke, right? Because they realize you're criticizing the king. You're calling him an idiot. Look where that got John the Baptist. 
And I can really imagine somebody saying to Jesus, that kind of talk will get you killed. And Jesus is like, I know. I know. It tells us something about our Savior. Understanding the background tells us something about Jesus. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't afraid to ruffle the feathers of the powers that be. And he knew there'd be a price to pay. And he was willing to pay the price for being the person that he was. So that's kind of... That's the kind of uh, savior we have. He's not afraid. He wasn't afraid. And so when John simply says that was before John the Baptist was arrested, that whole story comes into play. The people then knew that whole story of what was going on there. And they knew the chance that John was taking when he condemned that, that, uh, that marriage and, and those other things. And so this Jesus, he's, not, he's willing to say, what kind of a dope? What kind of a macaroon does something like this? And everybody's like, that one. (laughs) He lives right there. So in this passage, this is brought out because it fills in background information for people. And then we get to verse 25, and we see this argument that's going on. It's an argument over ceremonial cleansing. Why? Because John the Baptist did a very different kind of baptism. He did a baptism for repentance. It wasn't a ceremonial cleansing. It was a very powerful thing. It was a baptism for repentance. So uh, probably what's going on here is somebody came up and said, you guys are doing that baptism thing. Well, so is that guy over there. He's doing it too. What's going on? Are you together? Are you? And John the Baptist's disciples come in verse 26. Say, Rabbi, look, that, that man, isn't that interesting? That man. I'm thinking John the Baptist going, yeah, we know his name, right? That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about. It's so funny because they're going, you know, the one that you said, here's the Lamb of God comes to take away the sins of the whole world. The one you encouraged some of the other guys to follow. He's baptizing and everyone is going to him. So here's the problem. They're going, "This this is not right. Everyone's leaving us and going to him. You were so popular, John. You were so popular. So here we see, The witness, the disciples' problem. Now we're going to look at John's purpose. John's purpose is this. To this, John replied, A person can receive only what is given from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. So John is establishing who is who in this relationship between him and Jesus. He's saying, let's get this straight, you guys. He goes, he tells him, he says, I told you about this. I testified to this. He said, I have received a message from heaven. I have received a message from God. My purpose, my purpose in life is to proclaim, be ready for the Messiah. Make straight the way of the Lord. Prepare ye a way. Get ready for the Messiah. And John's saying, he's come. He's come. It's complete. God told him to say it, and he says, he impressed on me. I cannot ignore what God has told me to say. I cannot ignore what God has impressed upon me on how I should live my life, what my purpose is. He told me to prepare the way for the Lamb of the God. I've done that. I'm still doing it. I'm still pointing to him. It just reminds me. It's a dangerous thing to ignore God. It's a dangerous thing to have God impress something on you and say, 
Ah, no, not now. Maybe later. It's a dangerous thing to have God push something on you and say, I don't don't feel like I want to do that. That's not for me. It's a dangerous thing to ignore God. We need to be careful about that. And now John uses an illustration that would have been very common, very relatable to his listeners, and not so much to us. He talks about a wedding. He talks about the friend of the groom, the friend who attends the bridegroom, some of it calls us. Uh, It's kind of like the best man at a wedding, but it's not exactly like it. So let's talk about this for a minute, all right? The Jews were well aware that God had taught them that he was the groom and Israel was the bride. That was common in the Old Testament. They understood that imagery throughout the Old Testament. Interestingly, then the imagery begins to switch. Uh, Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride. And we will see that it begins even in some ways here, but we'll see it right through the, uh, the four gospels and into the New Testament, into the epistles and, and further. And so what's going on here? First, let's look at a typical Jewish wedding. I think this is important for us to understand. Two fathers got, you know how this was back then, right? Okay, we kind of understand that. Two fathers got together and negotiated. They worked out a deal for a uh, son and a daughter to be married. If the fathers were both agreed, there was, they would have this uh, ceremony. It was almost like they'd have the chuppah, which is just like in a wedding ceremony. It'd be like a, a four poles and a tent cover. You can do it in a number of different ways. still happens in Jewish weddings today. Uh, that signifies that God is over everything. God is in charge and, and over this wedding and the life of these two peoples. There's a lot of symbolism there. So they do this little ceremony, and the, uh, young, man's, the young man's father would hand him a cup of wine. as That would be part of the ceremony. And, the, and the, the young man would take a drink of the wine, and then he would turn, and he would offer it to the young lady, and he would say, this cup I offer you. And there was, a, there was a whole phraseology that went with it. Um, we're going to have this new life together. Our blood will be mixed, you know, because of we'll have children. And, and that phraseology that's all, all in that is kind of very symbolic. He's saying, I love you. I offer you my life. Will you marry me? Now, this is a pretty interesting spot because you have to remember, this is two fathers that have arranged this marriage. The the young lady and the young man don't necessarily have any input on this. And so now here's this young man. I mean, you remember the first time you asked someone for a date just kind of out of the blue? I don't know if you're a guy or a girl, it doesn't matter. But you asked someone for a date and you, maybe you called them and you're just thinking, I hope this works out good. Because this could be crushing if, if she says no or if he says no, Right. The same thing can happen. He offers that, says, my life is your life. Our blood will be, you know, life together. I love you. She could say, no, uh-uh, I'm not in on this one. Now, if the fathers push it, she still has to get married. That's the way things were back then. I don't think it's a great idea, but that's the way things were back then. But she's simply telling him, don't expect me to love you. I may do what's required of me by law. But don't expect me to love you. Or she accepts it and she says, I do love you. We will have our life together. Um, we, we will be one together. I accept you. So that little thing went on. Interestingly, during the Passover liturgy that Jews celebrate, there's a third cup. The third cup is the cup of salvation. That's when Jesus said, drink this in remembrance of me. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. 
And a lot of uh, theologians have noted that the phraseology that Jesus uses is incredibly similar to the phraseology that the young man used when he talked to the young woman. It's like Jesus is saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. I love you. I give you my wife, give you my life. Will you marry me? There's powerful imagery in that. When we take communion, it is reminding us of that. When we drink the fruit of the vine, because this phraseology is incredibly similar, he lays it on the line. And so uh, now they're considered married, but they're not together yet. They've had this little ceremony. It's been arranged. He goes home with his father. She goes home with her father. She starts getting ready. She's sewing her wedding dress, which could take, I mean, you you think of wedding dresses, sewing it by hand, one person, take a long time. He goes home, takes you to to begin to build their place. Now, their place, and they're considered married. They're considered married, even though they haven't been together yet. They're considered married. We see this happening with Joseph and Mary. They're considered married, but they haven't been together. And he's going to have to get a divorce to break it off. See, that's how it's, so it's much more, we think of it as being engaged. It's much more than engaged. It is much closer to being married. All right. So they're considered married and the father and the son return home and they start to build their, his place. Now understand what a Jewish home looked like in those days. It looked very similar to this insula is what it's called. There would be a courtyard And then they would build buildings around it. And sometimes if the family got big, they'd put a wall in and just keep building. Uh, Oftentimes they'd knock out a part of a wall and just build more room onto it. That's what's happening. You know, this whole thing of I've got a mansion in heaven. No, you don't. It's going to look more like that than be a mansion. Everybody's going to live together. They're a courtyard. The cooking happens in the courtyard. Uh, Kids play in the courtyard. Uh, Many times the father had like his special place in the courtyard. Whoever was the patriarchal father of the family, he had a special place in the courtyard where he would go and sit. You know, when I was a kid, my dad had his chair. His chair was his chair. No one else sat in that chair. You could sit in it if he wasn't around, but if he was in the building, you didn't sit in that chair. I remember sometimes I'd be sitting in his chair because it was the most comfy chair, and he would come home from work, and he said, I'm going to go in and get a drink, and I'll be right back, okay? And I'm like, okay, which meant get out of my chair because I'm coming back for it. And there would be a place for the Father here. It's just such a cool idea of what heaven's going to be like. There's going to be a place for the Father, and his family is going to be all around him doing things, whatever it may be. So that's the home, and they're just going to create one more room, maybe two more rooms for the bride and the groom. That's what they do, okay? So they do that. The father is in charge of doing this, so the son doesn't do a shoddy job in his rush to get back and get his wife. You know what I'm saying, right? Okay, so when we talk about interpreting Scripture, what are we saying here? Jesus said to us, I go to prepare a place for you. That's wedding language when he says that. I go to prepare a place for you. Because he's doing that. That's what's happening now. They asked Jesus, when are you coming back? And he said, only the father knows when I come back. Why did he say that? Because in the Jewish wedding, the father's the one who finally says, you know, son, this is a good job. You can go get your bride. You can go get your bride. And oftentimes when that would happen, it would often be, amazing, often be at night, 
partly because they worked all during the daylight in the fields and different things like that. So they worked on the place at night. And when the place was done, it could be three o'clock in the morning. And the father says, you know, if you want to take a, take a nap, and uh, it's been almost a year since you've seen her. If you want to take a nap, and uh, he says, no, I'm going now. I'm going now. I was doing a wedding one time, and somebody suggested, they were having some problems getting some stuff together. Somebody suggested we should delay it. <laughs> the groom was like, no. I'm like, dude, I'm with you. I understand. We are not delaying the wedding, right? We're not delaying it. So the son goes. So what does he do? He grabs his friends, and he grabs his best friend, the one who is considered, you know, the, the, the friend that John speaks of, the friend of the groom. And they march off to the village. It might be three hours away. And they march off. It could be longer. It could be shorter. They march off to the village. They stop at the entrance to the village, and they all start shouting, Your beloved has come for you. Awake, awake. The blessed one is here. You know, that kind of stuff. And then they pull out a shofar. That's the horn. You know, like that, right? Pretty good. That's all I'm saying. You you couldn't tell it from a real one. So they march. They get there. They blow the horn. They all start yelling. Now, how does that help us with interpretation of Scripture? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Jesus will come back with an archangel, his best friend. And there will be a shout and a horn will sound. See, what is that? That's wedding language. That's wedding language. The Lord will come with a great shout, an archangel and the the horn will sound. When we read the story, have you ever read the story of the the, the ten virgins, the five wise and five foolish virgins, and you're just kind of like... What's going on? Oil? Lamp? What? Preparation? It's wedding language. She, there's a village. Maybe it's a large village. And they hear, awake, awake. You know, the groom is here. He has arrived. Right? You hear that. And if you're an engaged, you know, married kind of woman at the time, and maybe there's more than one in the village. They don't know. They don't know who he's coming for. They haven't figured it out yet. He's at the outside. So all the virgins, all the women, they get up and start, get my stuff together. Get, this is my lucky day, right? That's what's going on in that passage. And so they grab, they go to the house, they get her. They have this thing with a seat, you know, and the guys carry her back all the way back. And, uh, and then they, they, uh, they have something to eat all together and people start all arriving for the wedding. So then they, then they have this wedding and it's a really cool thing. There's tons of symbolism. I'm not going to get into all of that. And uh, so then the bride is taken to the new room, the new couple of rooms, uh, to get ready. And uh, everybody else is out there, and they're, they're celebrating, and they're drinking wine. And, and uh, the friend of the groom has a responsibility. He goes to the door. He, he lets her in. He goes, and he bars the door so that nobody can accidentally barge in so that nobody who shouldn't barge in barges in and he has this duty and it's mostly ceremonial but you know sometimes stupid stuff stuff happens at weddings so he's there and they do some stuff with the groom and then he comes and he and the groom they hug and he tells the groom you are my joy my joy is complete my joy is complete and the groom says you have done what i've asked you to do and he goes in and he just stays outside and kind of, you know whatever um, now we're getting into the yucky stuff, right? So 
Then they come out and he announces they are married. They are married. And then, this is the coolest thing, then it's five to seven days of feasting. <laughs> Man, I like that idea, right? That sounds pretty cool to me. I, that's, a, that's a wedding reception right there. So it's a huge deal. And this guy's job, he's, he arranges things ahead of time. He does all this stuff. He, he guards the door. He makes sure that the joy of the groom is complete. Because a lot of stupid stuff can happen at a wedding. When my wife and I got married, my oldest brother was my best man. And uh, the whole thing ended. We, we went the, to, to the hotel. We were getting ready to fly out the next day. And uh, we decided all of a sudden, you know, a lot of times if you're the bride in the group, you don't eat very much, really. You're spending all your time talking to everybody in the whole world. All of a sudden, we're like, man, we're hungry. So we decided to go out and get something to eat. And so we're walking out. Now, while that's happening, three of my friends, who I will admit, my friends were not the most intelligent people in the world, thought that they wanted to do something really funny. And they were going to get flowers, and they were going to get candy, and they were going to order a meal, and they were going to have it all put at the door, our hotel door, and then they were going to knock and run. The old knock on the door and run thing, right? Remember when you were eight and you did that? Yeah, yeah. My 20-year-old friends were all about that. And so they decided to drive to our hotel. We're coming out. They come pulling into the parking lot. I'm like, what the heck? My brother's driving them. And he saw me and he was like, and all he sees, he goes tearing off. He was like, we've made a big mistake. Because people do stupid things at weddings. And so what is this guy's job? His job is to guard against that kind of stuff. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very important thing that he's doing. His focus the whole time. And this helps us understand what John's saying. His focus the whole time is on the groom, to lift up the groom, to make the bride and the groom be the focal point of everything and to make them happy. He finds his joy in making sure they are joyful. That's his focus. John the Baptist says, that's me. That's my focus. I am the friend of the groom. My job is to focus on his joy, to make sure everything, as much as possible in my ability, is to make sure everything goes the way he wants it to go. And so we see in verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. Verse 30, he must become greater. I must become less. He must increase. I must decrease. What is John saying? I've done it. I've done my job. I'm, I've, I've finished my job. It's complete. I still have stuff to do. I'm still going to keep pointing to Jesus. But my point was to prepare the way for the Lord, to get people ready for the Messiah. And he's here now. And I am thrilled with that. He's telling his disciples who are getting a little bit of this whole thing of, man, we used to have big crowds. Now we got little crowds. You know, we were important. Now we're not so important. Everybody's arguing with us. Blah, 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 like that. He was like, this is not the point. My point is to point to him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase. I must decrease. He is what I'm all about. 
And that's our lesson there. It's not about me. It's all about Jesus. John is saying, I have a purpose in life of lifting him up, of honoring him, of glorifying him. And that brings me great joy. I want that to be my purpose. That's where joy's at. Not just for the joy, because, but because it's the right thing to do. I don't think John was just thinking, well, I want to have joy, so I better do this. John was thinking, he's the Messiah. Go to him. As Christians, we are a part of something that is way bigger than us. There is nothing, nothing you can do with your life that will have more importance for eternity than to follow Jesus, to lift him up, to honor him, to glorify him. That's what we're here for. He must increase, I must decrease. And so we have this witness from earth that is John and the disciples' problem, and John says, this is what my purpose is. Now we're going to see the witness from heaven. We're talking about Jesus. Now, this is one of those times where it's hard to tell, does John, is John the Baptist talking, or is John the writer, the apostle talking? I think it's John the apostle, but it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Verse 31, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it, certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. So now we have this heavy emphasis on the fact that Jesus is from heaven. Uh, he must increase, I must cre- decrease, is what John said. And, and it is applicable to us because He's the one from heaven. And it's a reality check for us. He's remembering he's above all, not just above all people, above all things. Because I constantly have to remind myself, am I putting something ahead of Jesus? Maybe not a person. Maybe it's something. Maybe it's a person. Am I putting a person ahead of Jesus? I can't do that. So this reminds us again, God came down as one of us. He lived among us. He laughed. He experienced pain. He cried. He was one of us. And he came down to tell us about the Father because Jesus is the witness that says from heaven. He's the eyewitness. He has seen. He has heard. And we're told people refuse to believe him. And it wasn't that he didn't make a compelling case. It's because people refused because they did not want to face what believing him meant. I find this a lot of times when I'm talking to people, they begin to put two and two together and they think if, you know, if, if I really, if I really believe in Jesus, then I, I have to, in a sense, however they phrase it, that what they're saying is I have to put him first ahead of me. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. They're like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. And so they decide not to. People refuse to believe him. You know, we do it today ourselves. We decide what we believe. We decide what we don't believe. Some things seem too outdated. Some things don't seem fair, however you want to say it. But when we accept his teaching, this is what verse 33 is about, but whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Certified, the word there is a seal. It's the word they would use sometimes, uh, like with a contract. If you you signed on a contract, 
they'd put a piece of hot wax there and you'd have a signet ring or a seal on your neck and you'd imprint it in there and that was your special seal. You would say, by putting your seal in that hot wax and letting it dry, you would say, whatever the consequences of this contract, whatever the responsibilities are, I will do them. Whatever the consequences of this contract are, I will pay them because I've put my seal on this. This is what I uh, this is saying, this is what I will do. This is how I will live, however you say, however you want to say it. And so they seal it, they certify it. So when he says here, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful, that means it's saying, I believe what God has said. I believe it. I've, I've said this, I know, a bunch of times, but it's one thing to believe in God. It's a whole other thing to believe what God says. That's what's important. That's what Scripture says is the most important thing. So verse 33 is saying that when a person understands the testimony that Jesus makes about himself and commits commits herself to what she has seen and heard by following Jesus, her words and her changed life bear witness to the fact that Jesus is truly the Son of God. That's what certified means. It means I've committed myself to it, and my life will change because of it. And you'll see it. You'll see it. My life will change. One's life and one's words are the seal that everyone can see. Because each one of us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a witness to the truth of God that Jesus has told us. In verse 34 and verse 35, we see, For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. We have the whole Trinity involved in this. And then in verse 36, there's a stark choice here. It's what we've talked about before. God's wrath is not because he's angry at a specific person. He's angry at sin. He hates sin. He hates what sin does to his creation. He hates what it does to the creation. He hates what it does to the crown of his creation. Human beings who are created in his image. He hates that. And so to to reject the son is to go that way, to embrace that. But the, the great thing is whoever believes, anyone, it's open to anyone It's like when we say everybody's welcome. Jesus is saying everybody's welcome. Everybody's welcome because he's the reliable witness. He's the authoritative truth bringer. What does a witness do? A witness makes sense of things that we already know. You know, it's like a mystery. You watch maybe a mystery movie and you see the murder happen in some way. And then, but you can't figure out who did it. And then the whole rest of the movie is figuring out who did it. And at the very end, you go, oh, it was all there at the beginning. It was all there. I just couldn't figure it out. That's what a witness does. A witness is like, a while back, I flew into uh, Newport News Airport. And we were coming, and all of a sudden, I'm looking. I'm going, oh, man, we're low enough. I recognize that. Oh, there's Warwick Boulevard. I can see Warwick Boulevard. I can see, you know, I was seeing things. And all of a sudden, I'm looking down at Warwick Boulevard, and people are coming on Oyster Point Road, and they're turning left onto Warwick Boulevard. And I can see, oh, man, like about half a mile down, there's a wreck. And the, the police seem to be just getting there, and the traffic is backing way up. And I'm looking at the people turning left, and I'm like, don't do it. Hey, don't do it. Go back to Jefferson. It'll be fine. Why? Because I can see it. They can't see it. Jesus is telling us, I can see it. You can't see it. I can't see it. Jesus is saying, but I can. I can see it because I have, I have the perspective that no one else has. So when we think about this, there are things that, are, that we have to discuss, we have to think about. 
One of them is this. Jesus is teaching us how to live. He's teaching us things like always tell the truth, be a person of integrity. He's teaching us things like be radically generous with what God has given you. It's not primarily for you. He's teaching us that outside of marriage, sex can be dehumanizing, dehumidifying, right? That too, maybe. I don't know. I haven't investigated that very much. Inside the covenant of marriage, it is humanizing. He's teaching us when, when, when people attack you, respond in love. He's teaching us things like that. And we tend to, and 2,000 years ago he's teaching it, today he's teaching it to people on the peninsula. And we tend to react like this, that's crazy. That's impractical. I won't be happy if I live like that. And Jesus is saying, I'm from above. I'm looking down. I can see the start and the finish. I'm telling you here to be this kind of a person. It's because I know where that will take you. I know what's best for you. I see you're taking a wrong turn. Don't take the wrong turn. Being a person who's not a person of integrity is a wrong turn. Don't take it. So he deals with how, I, how we live, but he also deals, we know this, he deals with our soul. If you ever saw the show Breaking Bad, one of the things that might have hit you, because a couple of, for a number of TV critics, they, they mentioned this. There's no good guys. Everybody's bad. There's nobody that everybody goes, yeah, I'm rooting for him. I'm rooting for her. And I saw an interview on a podcast with the producer and writer, and they mentioned that, and he said, that's right, that's real life. Some are worse than others, but there are no good people in this world. It was very interesting, the turn it took, because I, I don't believe he's a believer, but he said, but some people are really bad. He goes, that's why I believe in hell. He said, if, you're, if, you're, if you see people the way they really are, you've got to believe in hell. And I thought, oh, my goodness. This guy's so close. Somebody needs to talk to him. I prayed for him. I prayed for him a lot. Um, because it, it was, that's what the truth is. The Bible tells us, and real life tells us, everyone's a sinner. If that's true, our salvation has to come from outside of ourselves. We need supernatural grace. We need the one from above. And Jesus is saying, I'm what you need. I'm the ultimate reality. And if you're just living you're out of touch with ultimate reality. You're just focusing on what you can hear, what you can see, what you can smell, what you can taste. Tim Keller used the illustration of Ulysses as he was sailing by the island of, of, of the, the sirens, sirens the, these, these beings who would kind of sing a song and drive you insane. And he wanted to know. He'd heard about it, but he wanted to know. So this is what he did. He put wax in the ears of all his sailors, and he lashed himself to the mast. He had them tie him up to the mast, and he just told them, whatever I say, don't listen to me. Whatever I scream, whatever faces I make, whatever happens, don't pay attention to me. And so the sailors just sailed around the island, and the songs came, and he was going crazy and insane, and he's screaming at them to stop. He's saying, no, I was wrong. It's not bad. You'll love it. Come on, take the ear. He's going, take the ear, whatever he was doing, right? What did he do? He gave up his authority. He put them in charge. Because he knew he would be out of touch with reality. So he was tied to the mast. He took away his own independence. And it saved him. If we give Jesus our authority, if we tie ourselves to the mast, what happens? That's where salvation is. That's what Abraham did with Isaac. That's what Moses did with Pharaoh. That's what Jesus did at the cross. Because we all have moments of insanity. We all do foolish things. We all have times where we have wrong priorities. We all have times where we make bad decisions. And we all know this. There is no evidence that those things have stopped yet in our lives. 
We're going to keep doing it. So what do we do? We tie ourselves to Jesus. Because I know there will be a time when the right way doesn't seem the best way to me. I know there will be a time when his way seems way too hard. I know there will be a time, and there have been times, where it doesn't seem fair. And I tie myself to Jesus because I know he sees the whole picture and all I can see is whatever is horrible right in front of my face. But he sees the whole picture. And so I lash myself to the mast. I trust him. I don't trust me because I have a well-established track record of screwing things up. And so I seal myself to him. I bind myself. I certify this is the truth, and I, and I put my life on the line for it. When you set your seal, you lose that independence. You obligate yourself. You make yourself vulnerable, and it is a lifelong process. I set my seal to my wife on June 13, 1981, almost 40 years ago. I told her that I loved her by saying I do. So, you know, we might be sitting in the living room, and she might say, Tell me you love me. And I say, girl, I mean, I told you in no uncertain terms on June 13th, 1981. What do you want out of me, right? And she's like, I'd like you to renew it every so often. So as followers of Christ, we need to renew our seal. We need to be praying. We need to be reading. We need to be singing. We need to be serving. We need to be loving. Why? Because that renews the seal, the certification that we have that this is true. This is what I live by. It renews that I am my beloved's and he is mine. That's what we need to be doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the depth and breadth of it. We can never fully uh, understand everything because your word never ceases to amaze us. Thank you, Father, for sending your son Jesus who paid the ultimate price for us because he loves us. And God, I thank you that you hate sin because it destroys us. And this world would be horrific um, if you didn't. And so as one of your followers and as everyone else here, Lord, we come before you. We give you thanks. We give you praise. And we pray that as we leave this place, you would give us opportunities to show others what a difference Jesus makes in the life of a human being. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Again, thank you for coming and being with us and uh, worshiping with us. And... Uh, Thanks for those at home that tune in faithfully, and we look forward to that day as things get more back to normal, that we can all meet together here again and uh, worship our Savior together. All right. Thank you for coming. God bless you, and you are dismissed.